This is the Sandman on TV podcast industries, and we're discussing the Sandman chapter three. Dream a little dream of me. What do you want with me then? Something of mine came into your possession. A leather pouch filled with sand. I need it back. Well, that was yours. Bought an estate sale a while back. Didn't even manage to get the drawstrings open. Where is it? No idea. Could be anywhere. We must find it. Must we? Why is that? Because without it, my realm will cease to exist, and if dreams disappear, then so will humanity. No offense, but I could do without dreams for a while. I haven't had a decent night's sleep in ages. Nor will you. Until we find the sand. Welcome back, fellow dreamers and nightmares. This is TV Podcaster Industries, and we're discussing The Sandman, Chapter 3, Dream a Little Dream of Me. I am the one conducting the hosting of this dreamscape. I am Chris today. <laughs> what are you what the days, Chris? Chris, Chris, Janice, Janice, Janet, well, um, George. Well, I'm one of your other hosts, Derek. Uh, always Derek. Excellent. And fellow dreamers, I am the third and final host, John. Yes, we hope uh, this podcast will help you daydream about all things Sandman. Hmm. Yes. Speaking of, before we get into anything, the Sandman Dreamcast has now also launched on Sandman.com and other places where it is essentially a sleepcast narrated by the cast of the Sandman. Yes, you can fall asleep to the dulcet tones of Neil Gaiman, Tom Sturges, and all the rest of the cast. Wow, that's really interesting. While they take you through the the, the, the dreamscape. It is very cool if you have a chance to listen Excellent. To yeah, I must must check that out because it's, it's weird. Neil Gaiman has one of those voices that I instantly recognize and I've always found way too interesting to not listen to so just continues to listen to everything he said if he's created a dreamcast i don't know whether i'll fall asleep to it i'll just listen to that it's a lot of asmr you were not gonna lie <laughs> it's like tonight we're gonna go on a dreamscape walk <laughs> and you're like that's really annoying i just want to listen <laughs> but we're not here to talk about the dreamscape and their sleepcast we're here to talk about the sandman mm-hmm. and the first three episodes. What? Yes, the first three. Because we're going to, before we even get into our spoiler-filled discussion of episode three, we're going to jump in to some feedback on episodes one and two mm-hmm. because we recorded them ahead of schedule, head before the release, and we didn't have a chance to listen to you and hear your feedback from the fellow Dreamers and Nightmares. So we want to jump in, discuss some of the finer points that you thought about on episodes one and two, and then we'll jump into... The spoiler-filled discussions on episode three. So, gentlemen, shall we jump in straight away? Yes, let's kick off with a piece of email feedback in from Coffee and Vodka, who says, 
Greetings, fellow trapped defenders. I first must admit I have a huge figurative and literal investment in the Sandman, and when I saw David S. Gore's involvement in bringing it to life, my heart sank more than a little. The writer behind Blade Trinity and Batman v Superman. In addition to writing this, he's also been given a producer credit. Just how much pull would Neil have in keeping his dream pure? Some changes in story structure are necessary for transit to a televised medium. Much of what I think of this series, however, will come from how far away from just based on or inspired by they can keep it. This is one show I cannot go lightly on. The introduction to the dreaming and dream, the sheriff going after the nightmare outlaw from the start, is absolutely puerile spoon feeding, showing a clear disrespect for both audience and source material. Goyer 1, Gaiman 0. The rest, while understandably truncated, was serviceably scripted. Excellently filmed, decently acted, with wonderful set and sound design. Tom Sturge is perfect in the role of dream, in look and demeanour. Boyd Holbrook is, so far, passable as the Corinthian, and Vivian Ashampong, great as caring yet proper Lucienne. Dream's escape was beyond gorgeously presented, ending the episode as it began, underlining an eventual showdown was basic, removing much of the grander atmosphere of the rest of the episode, possibly diminishing the series. All beats added in this first instalment ends in a score of Goria 3, Gaiman 2 which means Coffee and Vodka has scored this 2.5 bloody bird droppings out of 5. Peace and take care, Coffee and Vodka. Thanks for your thoughts, Coffee and Vodka. I do know, because I've seen some more feedback from uh, Coffee and Vodka, that he does uh, start to warm to the series more as it gets closer to the books. But uh, I know that this can be an issue when you're adapting uh, a show for TV. It definitely can be an issue when they move around bits of the story. Uh, Corinthian doesn't play a huge part in the early parts of the of the uh, comic books. He plays, plays a much bigger part later on uh, throughout what's covered within the series, actually. But uh, I can understand why they did it for the show. I can understand yeah. having to have this kind of central big bad, especially considering your Sandman is trapped uh, underground for a hundred years. So um, they kind of have to give a little bit of, of story there to it. But uh, I will also say David S. Gore, um, while he was involved in the development of this for many, many years, he handed it off to the showrunner, Alan Heimberg and Neil Gaiman as, uh, and they are all executive producers, but I actually don't know how much of what David Gore created is, is involved in the show. He said it handed off quite a while ago because he wasn't able to be involved in the show. He, I think he said he broke it. He broke the story. And, and for a lot of kind of TV writers or like, and that type of thing, it's where they take the source material and try and figure out how it would, could be structured across mm-hmm. like 10 episodes or eight episodes. So that's how they kind of break the story, quote unquote. I think from previous kind of interviews, I think he said he, he helped break the story mm-hmm. and some of the, the top line uh, highlights of each episode of how they would drop and kind of like how it would open to close. Uh, but the actual individual bits, I think you're right. He said he handed it over beyond that. Mm-hmm. And okay. there was obviously that. Yeah. Like, well, I, I'm glad that the final uh, score uh, of Goya versus Gaiman uh, ended quite close. <laughs> with, it was a 3-2 loss just uh, to, to Neil Gaiman. I, yeah. I guess there must have been a foul somewhere uh, <laughs> in, in that. So, I mean, that's it. it, it it's difficult to know. I haven't read mm-hmm. the comics so for me this episode was really good i think the bigger issue for me was maybe uh with the episode two uh which we discussed in the podcast just mm-hmm. being really quite short and, and just wondering where that fitted and it's but even having said that given that they premiered the first two episodes it would seem to me you watch it as a single episode yeah. ultimately yeah um 
they're definitely striking that balance because obviously all 10 episodes are released uh, on, on Netflix uh, at the same time. But yes, at the premiere, yeah. it was just the first two, wasn't it? So uh, giving people that kind of insight into where the show's going, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Coffee and Vodka. Mm-hmm. We also got some episode one feedback over on our Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash TV podcast industries. Victor Von Doom says, I could not take my eyes off this story. Everything from performances to visuals, music and audio was exciting. It was great fun to see Charles dance in full Tywin Lannister mode. Corinthian makes a great villain. There was also feedback from Dr. Bob Phillips. He says, I was delighted to see episode one a day early twice and be lost in the look and sound and feel of it. Only exposure previously has been via the audible adaptation. Highly recommended. Mm. So having the visuals was an explosion of delight. Adored the opulence and the disregard for Dream as an entity. The love story of the gardener, pure and faithful, shows how dodgy parenting can sometimes sadly win through. Hoping the scenes with Dangerously Thin Dream were either CGI enhanced or done over a very short time so the poor lad could eat and drink again. It wasn't the fascination of John Harrison, but a need to get him in a ward and feed him up. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much, Victor Von Doom. Thanks, Bob Phillips, for that. Mm -hmm. I I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, both your feedback really just the the visuals the 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 feeling the music the the soundscape of it was just so so well done and uh yeah i'm I'm hoping as well that uh tom sturridge uh, managed to get a good pie and chips in him at the end of the day just to to make up a bit more ballast mm. i guess yeah i'd hope that uh i'd hope that he's going to be able to wear that cloak a lot more in future so that he can <laughs> have, put on a little bit more weight than that definitely and remember this is going to be if they continue the series it could be over five to ten years that they'll be filming the show we'd have to keep at that weight for 10 years yeah Ooh. we'll have to have a body to fat ratio watch i guess <laughs> Well, I'm sure as a good Londoner, I'm sure he definitely got the pie and chips. I'm sure he did. Sure he did. I'm sure he did. It's like the first thing he went to. Thanks, (laughs) Dr. Bob. And thank you, Victor Van Doom. Absolutely. Thank you. We got two words from Doug Green who had this to say. Literal perfection. Direct to the point, Doug. Thank you very much. Joe Herbers had... I knew little about the story and my wife knew nothing going in, but really liked the first episode. Yeah, I think this is the thing. A lot of people kind of came in on the first and uh, like, again, depending on your kind of level with it or what you enjoyed, it was definitely interesting. The last piece of feedback for Facebook came from Lara Willie Swink, who said, I just finished episode one and it's everything my teenage goth girl heart desired (laughs) and more Mm. tom sturges is the embodiment of the comic book character both visually and how i expected him to sound still mad props to mcavoy's interpretation in the audible audio version Mm -hmm. i love how they give him more story to the corinthian using his escape from the dreaming to explain how an amateur like roderick was able to capture and keep the lord of dreams They made Alex a more sympathetic character and we are given a sad fate for Matthew's predecessor. Mm -hmm. So pleased the original fans of the comics were given what they'd been dreaming, I see what you did there, of for 30 years, but also a few new gems. Thank you so much, Lara. Yeah, 
I, I think for me personally, focusing in on Tom, he really is this. And as the episodes progress, you really do see how he starts to embody this character. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, for me personally, I know we've had feedback where some people aren't too happy with how the Corinthians come in so early. Again, for me, it was it's a way of introducing a, a a villain early on and well done. So this addition more story makes sense because the way we introduced the Corinthian in the comic books and how he is shown later wouldn't have fit in. Mm-hmm. So this as just giving him Hey, this is how he escaped. This is what happened. You know, the talk more makes sense of and the way he meddles. Yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely more involved in the story certainly than than um he was in the comic, especially this first episode. I was just thinking about it there when you were reading Lara's feedback as well. It's kind of important to give an audience who's going to sit down for a ten episode show and don't know anything about it some kind of thing to to latch on to at the beginning of the episode so they kind of know what they're following and if you think about the episode if you'd removed those corinthian scenes from the episode we wouldn't actually know what this series was about until the end of it when um, morpheus says i need to get my tools back effectively we wouldn't really know if you didn't have that linchpin of some antagonist in the show to yeah. hang on to from the beginning of the episode by the end of the episode you know but uh, but at least there's something there where you go oh okay well i, I get I have an idea that he's the lord of dreams and nightmares and this gives us something to kind of follow along with. But I think as well, it, it, it's an anchor for the series, yeah. not just for the episode, because, yeah. um, you know, he pops up in, mm. in episodes after this. Again, I'm expecting that that's earlier than when he was revealed and his story started mm-hmm. in the comics. So it's adding it for the series that, the, you know, not only these episodic, um, of, events that are going on that are being rectified at the time but there is this larger event going on so it it just adds layers to what's happening exactly um you know so uh yeah thanks so much lara thanks lara yeah yeah um we also got in for episode two from coffee and vodka greetings fellow dusted defenders well, the silly invented showdown plotline continues to skew the source material and demean the main thrust of the saga, which is Dream's journey. But much like ketchup on a steak, we can still enjoy the game and through the Goya with the best casting and portrayal of Cain and Abel one could imagine. The fates likewise mirrored their graphic novel counterparts extraordinarily well, and it's hard to imagine a better John D. Less deranged, yet still menacing. Finally, the other shining stars of this series, the atmospheric music, special effects, and direction almost make one forget the Corinthians' unnecessary expanded presence. Three and a half gifted gargoyles out of five. Peace and take care, coffee and vodka. Thanks so much, coffee and vodka. Um, Glad to see that the out of fives are beginning to rise. Mm -hmm. They're beginning to rise, for sure. Um, I would like to have known the footy score on this one as well, I think. Um, I'm guessing it's a, a win for Gaiman uh, on, so. on, on this one. Maybe 2-1 two, um, two, to Gaiman, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. I think um, in terms of um, John D character played by David Thewlis, um, he's just really, really good. And mm-hmm. I, I just think he he gets better as well Absolutely. over the, the season. He's a really... It, it's that mild derangement uh, mm. and <laughs> and terror uh, just in terms of 
what and how he views the world yes. and what it should be. So it's really, really good. Um, it's certainly very creepy. Yes, so, uh, yeah. we'll definitely be talking about him more as the series goes on. Good stuff. Thanks, Coffee and Vodka. Uh, also, we're on Facebook. We got some feedback on episode two from Dr. Bob Phillips, who says the librarian is so beautiful, as is the landscape, to be fair. Hadn't quite realized the sadness in the eyes of Morpheus as Gregory gives himself up for the dreaming. And having listened to the first episode of the podcast, the significance of them whirling galaxies in the iris of dream as he dives into the sleepscape was noted. Thanks, Dr. Bob. That's mm. what we do. Mm-hmm. That's why we are here. We can give you the significance. <laughs> sometimes. Yes. Sometimes we, get, sometimes. we yes. get the right notes. Uh, ben Rush says, My wife was in tears at Gregory passing, even though she knew about Goldie. Loved in the dream see the reverse Dream was the comic book accurate one. Yes, uh, I think we mentioned that, didn't we? That that he has got the eyes uh, yeah. of the galaxies in his eyes yeah. when he's looking at himself in the dream. See, uh, very cool, Ben. Yeah. yeah, thanks, Ben. Thank you, Ben. And thanks, Doctor Bob. Thanks, Bob. Victor Von Doom had this to say: "Greetings, dreamers. I am new to this story and totally hooked on it. So, questions: Do the Samlin's tool have some correlation to the waking world?" Cain and Abel, plus Gregory, comical and very tragic. I must say, I've never seen a friendlier gargoyle. (laughs) The Hecate are reminiscent of the witches Perseus visited. What are the serpents doing with the gargoyle egg? (laughs) How did Ethel come to possess the tool she used to banish the Corinthian? Is it something else she stole from the mages? I'm reading the comics ahead of each episode. It seems a good way to avoid binging the series. Night Night Dreamers. Okay, I'm going to hand off to our Sandman expert, (laughs) Derek. So first up, does the Sandman's tool have any correlation in the waking world? Um, No, there are his tools created for uh for his job uh in the comics anyway um no particular correlation to anything in the waking world it's it's uh but it does impact the waking world i guess in that sense not of course yes sorry did it have an impact absolutely but they don't have a correlation with the waking world i suppose um if you think about the old stories of the sandman where the idea came from uh, 100 years old i think the story itself um someone blowing sand in your eyes to put you to sleep that's where the bag of sand comes from because he was originally originally another dc character who uh neil gaiman took on board for this for this comic but um but no particular connection as far as i remember from uh, to to the the other tools being part of the waking world excellent next up um well we can say that kane nabel is a a, a tragic story Mm -hmm. so we can agree there we can say that they've never been a friendlier gargoyle have you seen disney's gargoyles just putting that (laughs) comic book series uh, animated show definitely friendly ones in there moving on the Hecate are reminiscent of the witches Perseus visited. Well, I can even I can actually answer this one. Yes, because they are. Yeah. They're the same witches. Exactly. Like, that's, that's, that's they are nice. they are the fates, um they yeah. known as fates, they are known as witches. Yeah. Um they're they're uh, generally at a crossroads and uh and yes, uh the three different uh parts of the same whole. I think they even appeared in uh, in Merton Gods as well. I think they had the three those three characters in Merton Gods as well. Mm-hmm. Finally um, because the ethel question will come later. We'll, we'll get onto that because that's <laughs> yes. going to come up in the show. But what was the serpent doing with the gargoyle egg? I'll leave that to you, Chris. Uh, <laughs> I Didn't have... you know that snakes actually laid gargoyle eggs, not snake eggs? And then gargoyles oh, lay 
Serpentex. Snake eggs. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Exactly. They've really kind of got a deal going on between them. <laughs> I, I was more going, he was going in for lunch. <laughs> like, that was probably where it was going. But we, we don't know, unfortunately, Victor. Um, but if you have a better theory, please let us know in your feedback. Somebody else left the egg behind, maybe? Yes. Or it's a magic yes. serpent, one or the other. One or the, or maybe the serpent it. was trying to eat it. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, and there we go. Morpheus saved the gargoyle. Potentially. But if you fellow dreamers have a better answer, because someone probably does, mm-hmm. come on. Or it'll be just hard. said in the next episode, and we've missed it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but if you or any of your fellow dreamers have a good answer for what was the serpent doing with the gargoyle egg, you can send us your feedback at feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com or you can head on over to our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash tvpodcastindustries where you can leave us your thoughts on what that serpent was doing. But I, gentlemen, that's all of our feedback for episode one and two. Yep, we'll have some more feedback later on in the episode after our discussion about episode three. Lots more feedback to come. Uh, thanks so much to everybody who's been sending their Absolutely. feedback to us. Yeah, it's, it's really good. We put up uh, spoiler posts for the first 10 episodes. So there there has been at least one piece of feedback on every post, I think, uh, for all 10 episodes. So we know some of you are watching it really quickly and some of you are watching along with us. Uh, thanks so much for sending in your thoughts. Yes, thank you so much. But gentlemen, let's move on over to episode three of the sandman chapter three dream a little dream of me and no i'm not gonna sing it before anyone gives out (laughs) don't worry it's you can unplug your ears i'm not gonna start humming but this is gonna be a spoiler filled discussion so if you haven't watched it yet i don't know what you're doing listening here but sure pause come back and we can wait welcome back derek do you want to tell them who gave them what for what they just watched? Yeah, the executive producers of the show are Alan Heimberg, Neil Gaiman, and David S. Gore. Uh, this episode was written by Jim Campolongo. Uh, Jim is also a an executive producer on The Sandman, but this is only writing credit for the series. Uh, staff writers for the episode include Vanessa Benton and Catherine Smythe McMullen. And the episode was directed by Jamie Childs. Uh, he's directed six episodes of his Dark Materials, four episodes of Doctor Who as well. And he's also involved as director of two episodes of the recently announced Willow TV series. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. Good to see. stuff. So he does fantasy well. Yes. Yes. Yes, he does. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for this episode? Sure. Morpheus tracks down Joanna Constantine to London, where she is not only dubious about the existence of Sandman, but must hurry to perform an exorcism on royalty at the behest of Rick the Vic. As she begins her exorcism under the guise of marrying the Princess Royal to an average footballer, she realises that she was right about the demon, but wrong about the host, as the demon Agalith bursts out of his host, Kevin the footballer. She sends him back to hell to the dismay of Morpheus, who was looking for information on the demon who had purchased his helm. But it is not a wasted journey to London, as he requires the return of his pouch from Constantine. However, Constantine reveals that she left it with her ex-girlfriend, flatmate, lover, it's complicated, after leaving her without telling her. As I say, it's complicated. Both of them, along with an unwanted raven named Matthew, head to Rachel's apartment, where they discover that she has been consumed by the world of dreams from the pouch of sand that is not meant for humans. 
Constantine is determined to cure her girlfriend, but Rachel is wasted away lying in her bed, and it is only the pouch that is keeping her alive, Morpheus tells Constantine. His reluctance to help end Rachel's misery infuriates Constantine, who questions the point of the Lord of Dreams. Seeing Constantine's guilt coupled to the stings of her baiting and a lesson in humanity, Morpheus agrees to give Rachel a peaceful rest. With his pouch back, Morpheus departs for hell, where Matthew, his raven, may be of some use. Meanwhile, Ethel Cripps, whose life has been prolonged by the Amulet of Protection, travels to an institution in Buffalo, New York, to warn her son John that Morpheus is after them and his ruby. John's dark obsession with Morpheus's ruby puts him at odds with his mother, who doesn't reveal the location of the ruby, but eventually passes the amulet of protection to John for his safety. On doing so, she ages rapidly and dies. Longing to get his hands on the ruby, John then escapes the hospital, using the amulet to kill all who threaten his well-being. As he takes his first few tentative steps of freedom in the outside world, he bumps into an unexpected nightmare. Very good. Ah, the unexpected nightmare. Mm. Don't you just hate when you physically bump into them? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Let's jump into our top moments for this episode. And I suppose let's begin the way all of them do. With a wedding and a funeral and an exorcism. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All the sacraments covered, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Should should we address Constantine? Constantine? Should we address that a the uh, the full introduction of Constantine? Joanna Constantine. Yes. Um, Great to have uh, this character on screen. Um, Been hearing a lot about her, obviously, in all the the material before the show was coming out. you know, Jenna Coleman is a great actress. We talked about her before uh, last episode that she's done some great stuff, uh, probably most well-known for Doctor Who um, yeah. and her character of Clara on there. But uh, I think this is a really, really good role um, for her. I think she's got a really good swagger about her. Um, she's got that swagger of Constantine about yeah. her. Yeah. Oh, 100%. The embodiment of how she... I suppose it's that swagger. It's like how I imagine Constantine essentially what acted in those Hellblazer comics mm. when he was doing those meeting, like um, the vicar meeting, kind of doing these exorcisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, we got flavors of that in the Constantine US film. Yeah. Like the one where, like, essentially Keanu Reeves, you got flavors of kind of how that was all going down and like that personality. Yeah. But I suppose it was always slightly different for me, especially when it came to the, the, the actual his, or in this case, her uh, approach to exorcisms and the loss of children mm-hmm. and like how that went down. So yeah, I absolutely. I can't just, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I so suppose I, it's pretty important to say here as well that, um, the explanation that Neil Gaiman's giving for having Joanna Constantine in the show rather than John Constantine as it was in the comic books is that there is a character called Joanna Constantine who we will meet later on in the series. And he thought it would just be as logical to have Joanna Constantine, a descendant of the other Constantine that he met, uh, showing up on the show. 
And I think that makes loads of sense because, yeah. you know, getting another character over from DC is probably quite difficult, getting it on Netflix as well. But if you've got an actress as good as Jenna Coleman, you want to see as much of her as possible, right? So um, this is this is a very big episode for Joanna Constantine. It's very, it, it's a, a lot of the character in there. I know lots of people calling for a spinoff of, uh, of uh, oh, Joanna uh, Constantine yeah. uh, taking over the mantle um, of the Constantine legacy, I suppose, uh, the way they describe it. But, um, but I really like it. And I, and I think it separates it for me from the Hellblazer comic books and not, I'm not expecting her to go off and, uh, do all the adventures that, that uh, Hellblazer had or that Constantine had uh, in those comic books. There's two notable actors who played the role. Matt Ryan played Constantine for a number of years in the DC-verse, and Keanu Reeves played, played him in the movie. They're both very notable actors, but I couldn't see them jumping in here for an episode. I could see Jenna Coleman coming in and doing a great job and, you know, getting people to like the character, but I don't think it would have made sense. It would have been way too distracting if either of them had come back to, to play this role for one episode. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I thought that Jenna Coleman was was just really good here. I think there shouldn't even be any kind of debate, and and we do get that kind of notion from Morpheus. I mean, it's as much as Morpheus kind of knowing this person, and you know that he says that he's known the Constantines for a long time. It is, you know, the nuts and bolts of it, as you say, that Neil Gaiman has mentioned. But mm-hmm. for me, I think. Uh, Joanna Constantine, I think as, as you said, Chris, she gets that swagger. I mean, I thought this royal exorcism was just fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of it all, she says to Rick the Vic, who do I invoice? Is it Buckingham Palace <laughs> or the Church of England? You know, the yep. <laughs> two big institutional pillars, I guess, of the the British establishment. Yep. Um, and I just thought that was really, really good fun. I love almost the disdain the brush off of morpheus when they first meet outside where she marries the princess and mm-hmm. um, you know you even have the the weirdness of the 280 year old hetty mad and uh, yes. mad hetty meeting her on the steps you know it sort of proclaiming that morpheus is back and she's kind of like oh you mean like the sandman that that guy you know that sends you to sleep so you know mm-hmm. just really dismissive really good and um, i know we'll come to it in other parts but you know there's the nod to constantine's backstory as well mm-hmm. in this episode which is really really good um and just the whole exorcism of you know well yeah. i was right about the demon wrong about the host uh-huh. as the both rick the vic and constantine thought it was um the the princess royal yeah. who was the one possessed because of this secret marriage happening with kevin the footballer who yeah. looked like a really average footballer uh, as he's described by, by by constantine as well um really good and of course yeah. just the the whole then exorcism being sort of brought in through you know as the marriage bands are being sort of read out yes yeah really good really good uh, idea to do it I, I love the concept that obviously they think it's the princess that's possessed because there's no way that she would not want to do the whole royal wedding thing with thousands and thousands of people watching on and millions of pounds spent on the wedding you know there's no way she has to be possessed by a demon right there's no way that she'd go outside the bounds of what they're allowed to get married to I really really like that kind of joke that's in there with with her as well Definitely. And, and even just once 
the demon Agleaf has burst out, which was such a cool mm-hmm. um, scene. It was done so, so well, just yeah. seeing the hands appear out of the mouth and then just poor Kevin being ripped apart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you kind of have Rick the Vic kind of almost tottering next to the, the demon as she tries to get the princess out, out of the way. Yeah. But it's even after that when... Morpheus comes up and there's this moment where Morpheus can get some information about where his helm is. And Constantine just sends, once she's known the name of the demon, Mm -hmm. she just sends the demon back to hell, despite Morpheus commanding her to, uh, not to effectively. So it's really got the irreverence of, of Constantine and, you know, that, that scouser reverence in effect. So I yes. really, really, really think Jenna Coleman was fantastic in this, yeah. in this opening moment. You know, it was that it was like the demon Agleaf. It was the burst of what she was doing. Um, you know, the, the sarcasm, the, the backhanded wit, yeah. uh, all that kind of stuff. The, the, the irreverence, not only for the demon, but mm-hmm. for the Lord of Dreams. So I, I thought it was really, really cool. Absolutely. So that's really our introduction to Constantine. Like, I, th- I think mm. it's one of the most fun parts for me. Um, we do get introduced to another character. Perhaps my favorite, one of my favorite actors in the world. Oh, right. Yes. Who's that, uh, Chris? That would be Patton Oswalt, mm. a fellow nerd <laughs> who has come over from Modoc um, on Disney Plus or uh, Hulu, depending on where you were. One of the only Disney. Marvel shows that got made mm-hmm. and all the rest of the other ones got ca- canned. It was Hitmonkey and Modoc. But I, I love Patton Oswalt. He, he, he's just a great, in my opinion, he's a great actor. He, he knows us and he's loved Sandman for years. Yes. So him playing Matthew Raven, the replacement Raven for, uh, that the, the Lord of Dreams must take with him or must kind of have with him based on, uh, the, the librarians, at uh, the librarians request, we should say. Yes. Uh, Morpheus doesn't seem overly pleased that, uh, that Lucien didn't, uh, didn't go along with him saying, no, I don't want a raven. And Matthew seems to be just annoying enough, uh, to make, um, Morpheus take him around with him, right? Uh, that seems, that seems to be the case, uh, with That's Matthew. usually how it works. Yeah. Like you need that annoying buddy. Like it, it, it's, it's all like, look at, uh, look at, uh, Indiana Jones. He had the annoying buddies. Um, if you look at most major heroes mm-hmm. have an annoying sidekick. Absolutely. And, and, and Matthew, just, so this, this is Matthew from the comics as well. This is, this yes. is very much someone that's newly come to the land of the dreaming, was formerly a, a, a living human, um, comes to the land of the dreaming and is now reincarnated as a raven to, uh, to help out Morpheus or watch over Morpheus. So, um, I, I really like this. I must say, I know Pat Oswald has done lots of voice work over the last couple of years. He's, uh, I think that's how he spent all of his time during COVID was doing all the voice work. I think. <laughs> hey, um, if you go, if you go to work, you can still work for Pope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but I think it works really well because, you know, they're, they're, this is just the first intro to him. We'll see him more throughout the series, of course, but, uh, yeah. but he'll have other storylines going on. He's not just going to be the sidekick character. He does have some other, uh, some other things that he will do. Uh, as the series goes on, I think I think this was a good introduction to why Lucian would want the Raven with uh, with Morpheus. I think, as we said in the first episode, 
Morpheus came back to the land of the dreaming and then just disappeared again. And the last time that happened, it was a hundred years before he came back and Lucian didn't even know what had happened to his last raven. So, um, so Lucian sending, uh, Matthew out just to keep an eye on it. So yeah, report back yeah. effectively. So hopefully if anything does happen, she can be informed, um, much quicker than she was last time. Yeah. Anything quicker than a hundred years yeah. is going to be quicker. That's, that's just a blink of an eye in, in, uh, the land of the dreaming though, Chris. That's true. <laughs> it is, it's a very long blink. It is. It is. Uh, do you want to talk about our, our next big moment from the episode? The uh, the kind of backstory of uh, of Constantine. Yeah, I think I think this is this is let's jump into this because this was one of the okay. It's a large backstory part of this episode, mm. um, but it's also it, it's a really nice. It's not really a reinterpretation. It's a re a visually re changing kind of style. Yeah, like the, the I've seen this now a couple of times through different books and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Constantine TV show uh, used this as kind of a coda. Almost every episode had a little flash to this. I know that yeah. only lasted thirteen episodes, but had a little flash to this backstory and then obviously the uh, Constantine movie with Keanu Reeves had a, a reference to this as well um, yeah. yeah and it's also you know because this is actually the opening of the episode as well where we mm. see um, Joanna walking down this corridor and seeing the door and the light behind mm-hmm. it um, and you're kind of like what is that it's, it's, there's that immediate yeah. intrigue and I just loved how it then went on to effectively be in the form of a dream which is how morpheus after the exorcism manages to find uh constantine again uh because she's really not that down with helping him out find his his stuff really and certainly when he commands her she's like well i'm not too fussed with the way you've asked me there and (laughs) and heads off so he finds her through her dreams and it's then when she's in her absolute tip of an apartment that you see sort of that, that initial scene, um, in the club sort of come to full fruition when the demon takes Astra, uh, the daughter of the, the guy that you see on the floor mm. who's been kind of incanting satanic verse. Just for a laugh. Just, just for the laugh. I and I just loved how that connected in with Morpheus through that dream. But as Morpheus rightly says, it's not just a dream. There is a memory there mm-hmm. behind it as well, which was, was really good. Um, and I think, uh, just the whole visuals of all that and sort of Jenna being left with the half the arm effectively of Astra as well. So it just showing how brutal this, this collection of Astra by the demon world is Mm -hmm. uh, and how it affects Constantine in her dreams and and that persistence of of memory Mm -hmm. through into the dream world. So I, I just really liked how, you know, it's only a small moment, but I think it really was uh, a nice moment. And of course, Morpheus absolutely cannot, find the pouch of sand in her apartment whatsoever mm-hmm. a it's a tip but also then find out it's probably in with an ex-girlfriend that mm-hmm. she left without speaking to um sort of six months ago yes exactly and that's where they're off to next i suppose and they're on their quest yeah. and that's kind of our next big moment from the episode is constantine um morpheus and matthew going to find the pouch of sand from rachel um constantine's former girlfriend um 
It's complicated. It's complicated. It really is. It's only when um, she started living with her that Rachel started calling her a girlfriend. That was just a bit too much uh, for Constantine. (laughs) So um, I really like these scenes because, again, this is a story of Morpheus connecting with humanity, connecting with the people that he's the Lord of Dreams for, I suppose. Um, So I like that they have that conversation outside the door um, about who Rachel is and, and how badly... Constantine treated her um, mm. and how badly this could go and will go even worse if Morpheus, the Lord of Dreams, walks in with her to the apartment. So uh, so Constantine's going in to do this on her own. <laughs> yeah, I really liked how um, Morpheus is like, I'm coming up with you. And Constantine just says, do you have many ex-girlfriends? And it's kind of like, okay, I'll, I'll wait, but don't be long. You know, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> And it leads to a, a great scene, I thought, with yeah. uh, with Constantine and Rachel meeting at the door and kind of rekindling their relationship because that's the dream that Constantine wanted. That's the that's kind of the the dream that she fell into when Joanna walked into that room. She's subject to these the sands that are in uh, that are in the apartment, so she falls into a dream, or at least she falls into um, Rachel's dream. Perhaps it's not. 100% clear, but as she comes in, they rekindle, they have a whole conversation, they are about to go to the bedroom, and then Morpheus does arrive, exactly as he promised, and wipes the dream away, wipes the the dust version of Rachel away, and they discover what Rachel's really like. Um, pretty brutal moment, really, because it's mm-hmm. effectively connecting a human going near the sands as a human getting addicted to heroin or something like that, getting addicted to a yeah. really a drug that's completely overtaken their lives. Um, it almost slightly, I mean, not so much the horror side of it. It just reminded me of Sloth from Seven, that idea of someone, mm-hmm. in this case because of the pouch of sand, not um, being able to move because they're effectively in this dreamlike state. Yeah. Um, and, and so just, you know, the muscles waste... And yeah. um, you're not eating, and it it ends up in this case with the pouch of sand is actually keeping her alive in order for the dream to 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 take and to keep uh, effectively. Yeah. So she's been there for I would say a long time. Um, well, yeah. You know, I mean, you see that the lights are flashing in the apartment. It, it's looking dusty. I really mm-hmm. liked how they kind of captured that as well. Yeah. yeah. I think Joanna said that she's been gone for about three or four months at this stage. Six months. Yeah. Six months, and then had left the pouch behind her um, yeah. when she left. But uh, Joanna does say that she couldn't open the pouch, though. She never even got the, the drawstrings open, so Rachel must have uh, had a couple of goes at that to try and open it up uh, and unfortunately paid the price. I think what's yeah. really good here as well is just, as you say, it is that initial conversation at the doorway where mm-hmm. you think she's back with at Rachel's apartment and Rachel is compass mentis and that they're, they're having that conversation because it is so awkward. And I loved how that played between the two of them where, you know, you get the sense that Rachel can and will forgive her. But as they turn in, she just says, you know, you have a lot to apologize for yeah. and tells Constantine about having not only phoned around, but to her other exes mm-hmm. who say, yeah. you know, 
just forget keep her. clear. It's forget some, it. It's something she does. This yeah. is the pattern yeah. that, that Constantine has due to the line of work, mm-hmm. ultimately, that she has. So I just loved how that played. And then you, you see Morpheus come in. As you say, I, I just love that whole passage, just that mixture of the dream world with mm-hmm. reality you know, in some ways with the truth in this case of yeah. what happened there. So I, I thought that was just really nicely done. And then to see the the actual reality of mm-hmm. it and with Rachel lying sort of emaciated in, in her bed, mm-hmm. uh, but kind of not unhappy in a sense because well, exactly. of the pouch of sand, whatever it, it's, it's feeding yeah. her in the dream world, you know, there's a contentment there, not necessarily happiness, but contentment. Yeah. And it's actually with the taking away of the pouch of sand that you get this agitation from mm. Rachel, which I thought, so I just thought this was really great sequence mm. of scenes. But again, as I say, very similar to what heroin can do to somebody, yeah. you know, yeah. the addiction is there. They, they believe that that's what's giving them the best life they have. And you take it away from them. They're going to start screaming about it. And that's, that's what's happening here with Rachel. Yeah. So the other thing I was wondering is, you know, this pouch has been with Joanna Constantine. This happens when you hold it or open it, or was it in something that prevented that? You know, what I mean is that the same fate hadn't happened to uh, Roderick Burgess yeah. previously. It hadn't happened with um, with Joanna Constantine either until she went into or, that apartment. So it was something Ethel, yeah. that I guess Rachel had done yeah it's exactly as as joanna says she couldn't even open the drawstrings on it she wasn't able to do that but uh rachel was so it is the open bag of sand that's caused the issue yeah as well as it is if you use the sand so it's like implied to a degree yeah that if okay. you sprinkle the sand you fall asleep in your greatest dreams mm. whatever you dream comes true so she yeah. stayed asleep she's used the sand to kind of have her the world she wants so maybe none of the rest of them had ever actually used it maybe they did yeah. open the bag but didn't, uh, didn't yeah. get you don't just sand. like sniff the sand like. exactly exactly <laughs> she's just like a rolled up 20 there that she's kind <laughs> of using but but um, kind of speaking of that moment with rachel as well like what did you think of the reaction from morpheus um when he takes the bag of sand back and is about to walk out on this dying woman effectively um until joanna stops him so I love this. So this yeah. is the, what this show for me is about, which in the comic books was always mm-hmm. about the journey. It's Dream's journey in his, what can start as hatred because he hate, not hated, maybe it's too strong, mm-hmm. but there was definitely a dislike for humanity after being incarcerated for a hundred years yeah. Yeah. by the Burgess. Like, like, he wasn't a happy, like, endless entity there. He was essentially a captive. So he comes out very jaded and despondent. And over the course of the books, hope, but does, in my opinion, kind of learn to love both himself and humanity again mm-hmm. yeah. through different stories and stuff. And that's what I hope is happening in this show because yeah. that's it's one of the best parts. So seeing, yeah, he still has that hatred. Like, again, it's still fresh because maybe about 24 hours, yeah. a bit more has gone yeah. on. Yeah. Like, that's not, not much since he's like 
since he's got out. So I think as well, it's I think for Roderick Burgess and for Alex, mm-hmm. definitely there's a hatred there, but it's almost a dismissiveness. It, it's yeah. kind of the way the way I saw, you know, he took the pouch because it was his and she was of no consequence to him. Yes. It wasn't that he hated her. He was dismissive of her needs and um, of Rachel's needs in the bed because, well, she had a pouch in her hand. She opened it. This isn't meant for humans, he says. And um, this is mine. I'm taking it back. Yeah. And it's like, right, job done. I need now need to get the ruby and the helm. And it's yeah. that dismissiveness. It, mm-hmm. It's kind of the, I Elephant guess, the ant complex. Yeah it's, yeah, it's the ant complex of, well, I can just step on you yeah. um, because you're of no consequence to me. I'm the one that affects you. Yeah. His hatred has been when the humans have affected him in the sense of with Roderick mm. and, and with, with Alex. So... I, and I thought, as you say, that whole sequence mm-hmm. is really good because that's where he is. And it's only yeah. then with um, Constantine saying, you know, sort of, in a sense, pleading, but also just getting really aggro with yeah. him about, you know, what's the point of you? Yeah. And um, if this is all you do, like, and I, I, that's as well, just that immediate reaction given, you know, her ex-girlfriend is the effectively dying now mm-hmm. and she's wanting to try and cure it in some way and um, f- for herself because she's got that, she's, you know, she's versed in the occult and, uh, and mm-hmm. all these different things, that, you know, thinking about what she can do to possibly help Rachel and, yeah. um, and yet, Here's this really powerful Lord of Dreams who effectively picks it up and is like, right, on to the next. Yeah. yeah. But exactly as Chris said, this is this is a motif that we should see if the show does yeah. a good job. We should be seeing this throughout the show. Morpheus is focused on the entirety of the dreaming. That's his focus. He wants to make sure that everybody is able to get the land of dreams back and it's all fixed, but he won't pay attention to individuals. He won't take, exactly. pay attention to people, especially after what happened to him with the Burgess family. So, yeah. um, so it is a little reminder of look who you're serving almost. Uh, yeah. you, you are the Lord of dreams, but without us, you wouldn't have any dreamers. So yeah. Um kinda kinda like that as a as a kickoff point to that storyline. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that twist in perspective that mm-hmm. Constantine provides there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also get one final kind of major story beat mm-hmm. um, across this episode, which is Ethel going back to John D. Yes, we do. So this is like such an like a great aside on this. Uh, so essentially Ethel talking to John slowly explaining like who Burgess was Mm -hmm. why what had happened and why it's important for like that that, that, that what she has is important to to, like all aspects of that yeah for me Crips like I, I was ho- I know I knew she would not stay around forever, but yeah. I loved her being in it because I love that actress. But also, the John D character, oh, he, he goes places. Yep, yeah. yes, he does. And I was just like <laughs> seeing John D being who he is, mm. 
Um, I like I like the getting, little nod back to his childhood with a woman who has the powers that she has by having all of the Sandman's tools. You know, by having the the ruby, she's able to on every birthday ask him what he wishes for, and you know, a horse will appear in the garden if that's what he wants, or a pony will appear in the garden if that's what, that's what he wants. I like that little touch. But yeah. there's a little nod to um, John D's history that I presume we'll learn more about as the as the season goes on because. Uh, he seems to have had an incident where lots of people died, um, which is why he's he is where he is. So um, that's quite interesting to have to have that set up here. And the episode ends with him killing a lot more people as well who were just in his way. Yeah, I think what Jolie Richardson and David Thewlis do in these scenes together is just so good because mm. it, it it's that. It's it's that mother son tension, or, or you know that parent and child tension, where you know she's she's had to take the ruby back from him yeah. because of whatever's happened in the past, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and the reason why he's in this institution. But she loves him dearly. She's come here out of that love to protect him, uh, to warn him because Morpheus is is loose. He's back. And he's looking for his ruby, mm-hmm. and and it's that it's that beautiful kind of parent-child tension. You know, he knows where the ruby is, but she wants to to have the ruby in order she can effectively just give it back so that he's safe. Um, but he doesn't agree with that. He wants to keep the ruby. For him, it's this kind of dark obsession with this this item, and. You know, he just becomes being really manipulative around then moving it back. Well, who are you, mother? You know, listening through all these names. Where am I from? You know, ultimately he knows. But but he's trying to sort of embarrass her almost about the life that she's led and how she's kept him safe. And she's always saying, well, it's always been about keeping you safe. And hence then why she gives him the amulet of protection, which effectively costs her life. Um, yeah. And I just thought it was really, really good. I mean, in the end, I think, you know, she, she asks, she does ask him, you do believe me. Um, you do understand that what I did was to keep us alive. And, you know, he kind of, he does say, you know, yes, but he's wanting answers. You need to tell me everything. And there's this sort of tension between them going back through the history to do with the ruby and so on. But ultimately, the, the, there's a protectiveness from Ethel Cripps towards a son that a son's not really looking for uh, because yeah. he doesn't care about Morpheus looking for that ruby because presumably he's wielded it previously um, and hence why he's in this institution, as Derek has said. So, um, yeah, I just thought this was really great, this this whole kind of scene within his cell within his um room in in the institution yeah the uh the amulet as well is just absolutely fantastic yeah again seeing seeing um the guards pop yes it was, i think is the best way of putting it i guess i think it I felt like they were being turned inside out and yeah. mm-hmm. slowly and then all of a sudden it just went 
whoosh, it was kind of like this flood hitting the back of the the lift, um, <laughs> which, yeah, it was really good kind of, um, I'm, I'm brutal, it was, but a, a great kind of visualisation of someone being turned inside out, basically. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And even when they did it off screen, it was just the sound effect of yeah, it, of that popping, as you say, that kind of like <laughs> slow unraveling, and then the gush as everything has just hit the walls, receptionist, nurses, or whatever uh, has happened. So it was yeah. really good. Yeah. For me, uh, again, just calling out that this might be this universe's Arkham Asylum, but they just can't call it that. That's right. What so. Nice, it's uh, like you see the security guards and everything. Although, kind of lax, gonna call it out. Like, after John is goes up in the elevator <laughs> and people have popped, there are still people walking in that lobby. Yes, sir. In the, like, and they just don't stop them. When you see someone shuffling out, the assumption is... Wearing pajamas as well. Yeah. Right. He's an inmate. Like, <laughs> well, it's yeah. not like if someone shuffles out of a hospital like mm. that, you're probably going to check on them. Yeah, it did look pretty cold out there. Um, hence why he was given uh, a coat from the Corinthian, the man yes. who knows where to be, right? Uh, he's, uh, he's now, um, met with Ethel, met with John D, met with mm-hmm. Roderick Burgess. Uh, yeah, he is, uh, he is involved, um, with everybody here. Uh, he gets around, round, 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 round. But I, I like just, you know, it was only a small scene, but yeah. I just loved how the Corinthian just, you know, responds to uh, John's sort of suspicion. Is you know, why are you doing this to me? And he's like, I only hope that you get to where you're going, and yes. you know, that's all he wants. Uh, yep. You know, be on your way and kind of leaves him. There's there's no kind of like he's trying to capture him or whatever. It's literally, I'm going to keep you warm for this moment because I want you to get back to the ruby mm-hmm. uh, before Morpheus. And so I just thought that was um, just really nicely underplayed uh, moment of bringing the Corinthian back in. Yeah. By the end, then you have these two sets with um, John D, but then also seeing Morpheus and Matthew um, off to to hell. That you know you've now got these two going off on, on their separate journey. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And Matthew's going to be of use in hell. Yes. <laughs> I don't know whether he believes that or whether he's really concerned <laughs> about that, but I would be. Um, my new boss was telling me, I'm going to bring you to hell with me because um, he could be of some use. Well, I guess he can be surreptitious. Uh, and, you know, like Morpheus in yeah. this episode says, don't spy on me because yeah. he comes up to the window where, where Rachel is. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it, it's kind of like he's able to scout yeah. um, through. So, um, But ravens are helpful. They can be, yes. Especially the Baltimore Ravens, which exactly. I presume is what you were going for. Yes, I was. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we knew that was where he was going. But there, well, that does end this episode. Mm-hmm. Kind of, we've hit all the major points. But is there any notes? Anyone want to bring up anything last minute before we get into what our final thoughts? There's only one note for me, which is just a, a, a kind of a, a 
a demon hunter lore thing, um, which I just liked the touch of, which was when Constantine finds out the name of the de- demon is Agaleth, she instantly uses that to push him back to hell. Um, that, that's something you would have seen in other shows and movies that deal with demons that once you know their name, you can trap them effectively. So, uh, so it's not, it's not called out specifically here, but it looks like that's the quickest way yeah. for her to bind the demon and send it back to hell. I like that. That's what happened. I love. That uh, Morpheus is going. No, wait a second. I had I had to ask him a question. That's why I was here. <laughs> uh, I really like that. But um, yeah, at least it's not the power of Christ compels you. Yes, like, especially because the demons in the church uh, absolutely doesn't compel well, yeah. to do much. Really <laughs> excellent. Well then, you know what that means. We need to wrap up dreaming a little dream of me because I need to go to bed. So, John. <laughs> What did you think of the Sandman Chapter Three? I really loved this episode. Um, I, I just everything about it. Um, for me, it's five coring ravens out of five. Nice. Um, I really loved seeing Joanna Constantine. Um, mm-hmm. in this episode, loved her from the the cool opening in in the London Club that we get to see later on. Sort of just show that little glimpse into. That whole background story of Constantine uh, that we also saw on the the DC show as well with mm-hmm. Matt Ryan, um, I the the royal exorcism, fantastic. Uh, poor Kevin, the footballer, <laughs> he um, he really did look like an average footballer. I just loved all the different touches. <laughs> the poor actor is probably a real, I, a real footballer. You're just calling him average. No, no, no. Constantine said. Isn't he an average footballer? Why is she marrying him? So it's just like really, really good. Maybe um, maybe he was making a deal with the demon to be a better footballer. Yeah. Oh, that could have been made. That makes sense. <laughs> it could have been absolutely. Um, uh, the Ethel and, and John D just their scenes in in his in his room in in the institution are just that whole sort of mo- mother son sort of tension and at odds with one another uh, and and niggling it that only parent and child can do i just thought it was really really good uh great getting matthew the raven um you know fantastic mm-hmm. uh got a bit of back chat uh we didn't really hear much from the other raven um no we didn't uh Jessime, uh i guess she was really just watching um yeah. and, and learning until she got shot and then also, just the whole thing around Morpheus getting his pouch back, you know, this first step um, in, in being schooled by Constantine about humanity and that even as Lord of Dream, um, he should have some. Yes. Um, and, I, I, you know, the fact that he does give her a peaceful rest, he can't cure her, he mm. doesn't do that, but it's just he allows her to to die peacefully in her sleep yeah. so i thought that was really just lovely touches all the way through this uh, and i can't wait to go to hell uh, and also uh, not me personally okay. obviously um and also um i you know can't wait to see uh where john d is heading to as well mm. Some interesting stories to go. Where has he stuffed that ruby? <laughs> mm. Derek, what did you think? I or do I need to ask? I absolutely love this episode. Not saying I'm not throwing any shade at the previous two episodes, but this is the first truly great 
episode of this series. The first one's a great opener, the second one establishing things, this one giving the real concept behind Sandman, as we mentioned, the the idea that he's learning to refind and reconnect with the people that he's supposed to be uh, supposed to be providing the dreams to, I suppose. Um, the performances in this one are fa- fantastic. Absolutely loved um, Jenna Coleman in here, as we've as we've already said. Um, I really love the concept of this story, just this kind of side trip to go and meet Joanna Constantine, um, where he's going to collect his, his uh, bag of sand, or pouch of sand. A uh, bag of sand doesn't sound as cool as, uh, as pouch of sand, does it? <laughs> and his bucket in space. <laughs> his bucket in space. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I really love this. Love what it's love what it's setting up for the rest of the series as well with uh, with Ethel and uh, and John D. And um, yeah, really intrigued to see them go to hell. Another one of the very famous parts of uh, the first couple of volumes of uh, of Sandman. Chris, what about yourself? What do you think of the episode? Absolutely loved it. I can't add more to what you guys have said. Um Constantine was is a a fan favorite um character and the portrayal here was absolutely fantastic. Um Matthew, I I love the actor and this is a great rendition, if mm. you want to call it that, a version. And it's just, again, it's the story unfolding further and further. And it's all that beats that I want to see. So I can't add more to what you guys said and just say, I I want to roll on to each episode mm-hmm. quicker and quicker. I just don't so, want this this series to run out. That's the only reason I don't want to roll on to every episode and just watch them all. I don't want it to run out because we're going to be waiting a year and a half, two years well, that's true. for another yeah. season. Yeah. Unless they've been quietly filming somewhere, which I don't think they have, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> time will tell yes it will yes it will we want to hear your thoughts so please send them in to feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com or join us over on our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash tvpodcastindustries and we have a spoiler post for each and every episode where you can put in your thoughts and we will read them out in our own dulcet tones but if you want to hear your dulcet tones you can head on to tvpodcastindustries.com dot com and you can record a voicemail or you can just send us your voicemail to feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com I've said tvpodcastindustries.com quite a lot so let's get into your thoughts and your feedback first up we have an email from Robert Williams who had some feedback on our episode 2 podcast hey guys we're enjoying your discussion on the show like Wheel of Time, I would be having trouble keeping up with some of the plot lines without you guys talking about the background of the story. I did not read the comics, so forgive my ignorance, but I noticed that there is a lot of Cain and Abel time given here. What was their importance in the written story? Were they simply comic relief and devices used to explain some lore elements? I mean, the characters are well played, but it seems kind of odd to me. Thanks so much again, Robert. I must also amend my last emails. You did discuss a bunch about Cain and Abel, but do they exist in the same realm as Dream? Do they have powers themselves? Do they end up playing critical parts in the comics? Hopefully that makes more sense. Thanks! No problem, Robert. Well, to answer your question, it's not about real time, so I can't really be the expert here. <laughs> uh, Derek! You don't have to throw it over to me. You've read the comics as well, Chris. You know I this. Know, we, you, there's a difference. Like It's like I know X-Men 90s and early 2000s <laughs> X-Men lore inside out and backwards. Right. I know Spider-Man lore inside out. I know Wheel of Time lore inside out and backwards. You know Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Nick Fury, 
and the Sandman lore backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there are still going to be people that know it better than me. So uh, if I get anything wrong, please, please continue sending your feedback to us. Uh, Cain and Abel are really important in the comic books because they are two of the main residents that are left within the realm of the dreaming that are in the same realm as Morpheus. Um, I think there was a little bit of confusion when we talked about that in the first episode because maybe it wasn't clear, but um, Morpheus was looking for something that he created in his realm um, so that he could take the power back out of it. The only two people that he knew that had something, which was Gregory the Gargoyle, uh, the only two people that he knew was uh, were Cain and Abel. Um, do they have an importance in the written story? Yes, they do. Um, probably because they are very central characters to the dreaming throughout the entire series. You see them from really early issues all the way up to the end. So, uh, so they will be around a lot. Um but I'm not going to spoil anything that they do. No, or anything, we can't. I was going to say, yes, they do, but don't say more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but they do have a major importance, I suppose, as do as does all the characters that are that surround Morpheus. Yeah. Do they have powers? Yeah. they. Uh, Abel comes back from the dead. Well, yeah. Yeah. Every yeah. time he's killed, yeah. Cain consistently kills him. <laughs> Nearly every day, I think. And depending on how much he's annoyed, buries him in it. The depth of a grave yeah. to be considered <laughs> determined <laughs> at that time. But it doesn't usually kill him before lunch. That's all we know. No, exactly. Yeah. On a good day. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's fair. Excellent. Thank you, Robert, for uh, listening to the podcast and asking those questions around Cain and Abel as well. Because, yeah, I, I had similar mm-hmm. thoughts. You know, I realized we were still in uh, the dream realm uh, at that moment, which... I think you you did kind of mention that yeah. uh, later on. So yeah, but they are the the owners of the house of secrets and the house of mysteries. Yes, two houses that they own. So Ooh, that may come back later. It sounds like it will for sure. Uh, yeah, thanks so much, Robert. Uh, great to get your thoughts in. Uh, we also got an email in from Coffee and Vodka about episode three. Greetings, fellow exercise defenders. Joanna Constantine is a replacement for John Constantine, who they couldn't get for legal reasons. As great as it would have been to see Tom's dream and Matt Ryan's Constantine sharing the screen, Jenna Coleman does a fine job in her portrayal of Joanna. The extended dialogue between John Dee and his mother, as well as the handoff of the talisman rather than the gem, while diversions from the actual story worked. As did the appreciated, almost beat-for-beat scenes between Morpheus and Constantine. It's clear, just as in any project like this, you want to create something palatable to both fans and casual viewers alike, and this episode rode that line cleanly. Gothic horror a la The O.C., (laughs) as contributed by the third member of the team, Alan Heinberg. Mm-hmm. Coffin Vodka continues, I suppose even using the Corinthian rather than a woman innocently picking up what she thought a normal hitchhiker as a shortcut might be considered efficient. Did think, however, we might get one episode without him as the arch nemesis thread running through it. Why do you think the producers thought this series requires an arch nemesis, by the way? To placate the aforementioned casual viewer, perhaps? There was a certain poetry to Dream being his own worst enemy in the graphic novel, one which I think could have carried over just fine to the show. What do you think? Unnecessary trope or do I protest too much? In the end, a tight enough story that hit all the salient point. Four Dream-dusted lovers out of five coffee and vodka. 
Thank you so much, Coffee and Vodka. And I'm again, it is ticking up even further that now. We are on to four out of five. So that is really good. And mm-hmm. um, I think with the um, sort of so our comments are on your episode two, you know, this arch nemesis, I think, is also about the series. And I think mm-hmm. just to allow that bigger tie-in later on where maybe he he would have popped up in, in, in the comics. Um, so, I mean, as I say, I've I not read them, but that would be my guess around yeah. that. So yeah. it, it, I think it's just sprinkling it through, like, you know, hundreds and thousands over a cupcake, <laughs> yeah. really. And I think... Um, I think you don't want the casual viewers to forget about Corinth- yeah. Corinthian. Um, he... he Obviously, is going to play a, play a major role in the season, but having introduced him in episode one, had a little moment with him in episode two, and an even smaller moment, really, in episode three here, it's just keeping him present in mind. So when you see him later, you know who he is <laughs> straight off the bat. So Beyond that, though, it's also he has greater machinations. He, he is a, a larger character who is pulling strings mm. to a degree. So you also do want to see that he is fighting against what he believes yeah. the Lord of Dreams yeah. is doing. So how he can stop the Lord of Dreams coming back to power. So he is doing the he's he's doing the the spy networky thing in the background. So he's always there. He's a nightmare. He's always around. Yeah. Um and look, whether you protest too much or unnecessary trouble, time tells. I think we can look back at the end of season one. At the end of season one we can go, oh you're like, yeah, maybe you it wasn't necessary bit having him too much or maybe like it's the right amount of flavor because by the time we get to wherever it is at the end of season yeah. one like we'll know well yeah no it was the perfect amount because it just kind of fed us the details it spoon fed us little bits each time so wait and see and it's also i guess it, it you know netflix drops it you watch it all mm-hmm. i think watching it episode by episode and probably for for yourself um coffee and vodka having read the comics you, you know what's already lying ahead so um or, or what's been dropped for mm-hmm. efficiency but having sort of watched a couple ahead then some of those efficiency gains that you talk about mm-hmm. um and which you know about at this stage will also um you know be realized uh, in hopefully a way that you really enjoy absolutely yeah uh, great to great to hear your thoughts again uh coffee and vodka on that we also have an email in from christina jones who says hey guys just wanted to drop a line and say i'm enjoying the series thus far and look forward to your breakdowns as i've only just finished the first half of book one of the audiobook i wish i had ingested this via comic panels instead but alas welcome to time management reading <laughs> Sturgis is the embodiment of James McAvoy's characterization in the audiobook, which draws me in perfectly to the familiar arcs unfolding. Can you tell me, will they cover audiobook one or are they taking all elements from the comics into this show? Can't wait to see death. I love Kirby and I think she will bring that spark to the role. The casting is ideal. Keep up the great work. Cheers from Christina at Black Girl Catch Reviews. Thanks, Christina. Good to hear from you. Yep. Thank you so much, Christina. On the audiobook, in Act 1, they did the first three volumes of The Sandman, and they have released Act 2 now, um, so there's another three volumes in that. Uh, on the show, on the, on the Netflix show, it is just the first two volumes of the book, Preludes and Nocturnes and uh, The Dollhouse. 
Okay, excellent stuff. But I assume they'll sprinkle something in, some little threads to tease what may come in the future. Because they, again, Neil Gaiman wrote these on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. They obviously, they all have ideas of where they want to go and they, they, they write out story beats. But, yeah. like, here he is able to, the creator of the Sandman can tweak little bits in his retelling and go, I'm going to sprinkle it a cool thing here now in season one mm-hmm. and potentially in season three or two when we get to volume four or six or whatever, that's going to make, oh my God, mind-blowing a moment. <laughs> I, I, I think, what well, personally, that's how I would do it. Right. Well, that's um, it. And it's also that Neil Gaiman has had 27 years to think on his as you say, his his comics that he Mm -hmm. was doing, you know, yes, he planned them out and so on, but in terms of adapting them, he's, he's reimagining them and how you can tell that story. So it's, it's a really, it must be a really interesting process for him. And I, I think as well, it's just really interesting. Like with Christina, just people, different ways of coming to Mm -hmm. the show. So I've not listened to the audio book, even let alone, read the comics so i'm just coming purely from the tv and and me whining about you that you should read this for 15 years well that as well and maybe <laughs> yeah. that's why i kicked against it ah <gasps> oh, you tell me shocking. i'm not about to nag you. shocking <laughs> thanks so much christina yeah thanks christina thanks so much christina over on the bookie of faces we do have some feedback from victor von doom who had this to say over on the bookie of faces, we do have feedback. First up, some feedback from Victor Von Doom, who said, Greetings, dreamers. Another smash episode. Seems Morpheus indeed has a heart. Can't say that for the Corinthian. I enjoy my homeboy Patton Oswald as Matthew. David Thewis as John D is very scary now. Will Corinthian conscript him to the cause? Already dreading the Lucifer Morpheus meeting. Nighty night dreamers. Thanks so much, Victor Von Doom. Yeah, um, homeboy Patton Oswald. He he's good. <laughs> he's very good. Yeah, he's very good as Matthew. Definitely. Uh, I'm so looking forward to Lucifer and Morpheus music. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Mm. And I wonder if I don't know what happens later, but certainly at this moment, it seems Corinthian is just using him in a sense rather than as such kind of. On as a partner, maybe. Mm. Um, but I'd not say that that doesn't happen. But at the moment, yeah. I like the way he's just kind of going, be on your merry way to yeah. find your ruby. It fe- yeah, it feels like he's keeping an eye on the things that yeah. could help him. And anything exactly. that keeps stuff away from Morpheus <laughs> might keep Corinthian on this plane, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. Thanks so much, Victor. Yeah, thank you so much, Victor Von Doom. Uh, next up, uh, Parthenia Dupree Locklear. Uh, I know nothing about Sandman or what to expect of it, but when she showed up, I yelled, Clara. <laughs> I do know a bit about Constantine, so this was a pleasant surprise to me. Excellent stuff, Parthenia. Um, yes, 
Clara uh, from Doctor Who, mm-hmm. indeed. Uh, and yes, I, I know a bit about Constantine as well, uh, other than how to pronounce the name, of course, um, given uh, the, the outtakes from this podcast, I, I guess. I feel like we would have about 40 minutes of outtakes of all so. of us pronouncing uh, Constantine, Constantine, Constantine. Constantine. I just want to roll with it, but we do have a producer here that is... I, Stamping I'm, his authority I'm on, on this guaranteeing one. a few have slipped through because you didn't re-record them when I asked you to, John. That's true. <laughs> um, thank you, uh, Pothenia. Uh, Dr. Bob Phillips, uh, also over on Facebook, says, Swept away again by this one, genre switching as the stories demand to be told. We had one and a half episodes of epic fantasy with a sprinkling of spy thriller. Now we have a film noir with gory horror flick. Mm -hmm. They haven't held back on getting top quality actors turning in top draw performances. Sultry emo lord with a heart is balanced beautifully by Modoc Matthew (laughs) and kept in place by a surprisingly untidy Clara Constant. There it's Johanna, Constantine, mm-hmm. Constantine, <laughs> Constant Who, I don't know <laughs> anymore. <laughs> um, Dr. Bob finishes with, how on earth can she look that good in a flat with that degree of disorganization? <laughs> and farewell, Ethel, you lived life to the fullest. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Bob. I know what you mean about the disorganization. I felt that as well. It's kind of like... Where does she find everything? You know, it would have been handy if they'd gone to Rachel's and then realised that the pouch of sand was actually, was actually back, in her, <laughs> back in her apartment. Um, and she just had to deal with a really angry Rachel that was really annoyed and ticked off about having been to. dropped yeah. with, with no warning or, or no um, no message. I like it. I like it. That would be, a, that would be a, an alternate take of the show. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks, Dr. Bob, for your feedback. Uh, also on Facebook, Ben Rush says, this was the episode I was most interested in seeing as I'm a massive Constantine fan and also a Jenna fan too. And it was excellent. Jenna had the Constantine job down easy and the scriptwriters using elements from Jamie Delano and Garth Ennis stories to help fill out the episodes was chef's kiss. And having Claire Higgins as Matt Hetty, a bonus cuddle. 11 out of 10. So, so happy. And at last, the name is pronounced correctly. I'm guessing Matthew the Raven is still Matt Cable from Moore's Swamp Thing run. Anyway, absolutely loved the episode. Thank you so much, Ben Rush. On uh, Matthew, I i don't know if they'll go into it. I, I don't think they will. No, I don't, don't think they'll um, they'll make that deep connection to other DC comics. I think that the show is going to try and keep it within the Sandman lore, which is fine for the most part, because almost everything from these two volumes onwards takes place in the universe of the Sandman, doesn't really go in and out of the DC universe. It's just that first volume that has characters come in from uh, other yeah, DC comics. Okay. Um, but he just references it here. He references, I was on Earth quite recently, yeah. and now I'm here. Yeah. Um, they might give his name as a nod and a wink and a nudge. Yeah, possibly. Um, maybe. I saw a monster when I was dying. Yeah. What was that about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, some, yeah. And I mean, Swamp Thing kind of could feed into the the horror gore kind of stuff a bit, I think. In, yeah. In this. But, but we yeah. definitely won't see Swamp Thing in the show. No, you won't. You, <laughs> no. no, you definitely won't, for sure. No one will uh, see Swamp Thing. But the lore of again. it, you know, the mythology <laughs> of something swampy. Uh, could could really, you know, f- 
you could see it fit here for sure. Yeah. Um, they and- could just also say, because of this heat wave going on, anything swampy is in my pants because <laughs> it's so warm. Oh dear. Well, that's horror. Um- <laughs> <laughs> but Ben Rush, thank you so much. And, you know, we might turn your happiness in into sadness. Uh, because if you ever heard the unedited version of this podcast, uh, you know how differently uh, Constantine is pronounced uh, by <laughs> myself alone. Well, let alone <laughs> everyone else. But really good to hear from you, Ben. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Yes, thank you so much, Ben. But that brings us to an end of our feedback and that brings us to an end of our episode. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you say subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoy what you hear, why not share it with your friends? Because sharing the podcast is what, John? It is, of course, fellow dreamers sharing the love. Oh, yes. If you love what you hear, why not head on over to patreon.com slash TV podcast industries, where for an ongoing monthly amount, you can support us and help keep the lights on, the engines running, the hamsters spinning in the wheel. And right now during the heat rush, just like literally me in like ice cold drinks because, oh my <laughs> God, it is warm. Absolutely. And I remember when we we're recording, we can't put on fans or anything. So we're, uh, no. we're it's just hot. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to help get us an ice cold one-off coffee you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash tvpi where you can literally buy us an iced coffee we'd be very much appreciative if you can't buy us a coffee or support us on ongoing amount don't worry you can still like share rate review on all the podcasts dreaming or nightmare catchers because sharing the podcast rating us leaving a review is so important for discoverability and helps little podcasts like ourselves. And it is greatly, greatly, greatly appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for your support and for all the feedback you've been giving. Um, we'll be back next time with the Sandman Chapter 4, A Hope in Hell. Ooh, we are going Ooh. to hell. Ah. We're all going to hell. Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer. Can't wait to see that. Excellent stuff. Well, thank you so much, and we'll speak to you again soon. Yes, thank you so much, fellow dreamers. Remember, keep watching, keep listening, and keep dreaming. Nighty-night. Bye. Bye.